you can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we will be continuing our study of the Gospel of John. You'll recall last week we took a brief pause out of John's Gospel to consider the question, what is the church from Ephesians chapter 4? And we were looking and seeing in Ephesians what the significance of the differences between the invisible universal church, every Christian on the planet for all ages, and the local expressions that we call churches and how those local expressions are a gift from God that are marked by order and structure and those who are called to lead and to teach and such things. Today we press on, and so without any further ado, I'll ask you to stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's Word, and we will read John chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and arrayed Him in a purple robe. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck Him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord God, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank You for the testimony and witness of Your Son. God, I thank You for the testimony and witness of Your Spirit that You're pleased to open up Your Word to us by. Oh God, I pray that would be our portion today. Lord, help us to see these words, these Scriptures as being breathed out by You and not merely rhetoric, not merely a story that we might look into, but a person. The person of Jesus Christ and what He came to accomplish. Oh God, I pray that You would humble us. Humble me. Oh God, that You get all the glory and praise. I do pray that You would shut my mouth if I would misspeak. Lord, that You would protect this body of believers from error that might come from me. Oh God, that You would speak to us. We're dependent upon You in every way. And I pray You would humble us that You would convict us and show us the glory of Your Son and what He has done for us. Lord, I pray that You would guide our thoughts and grant power from on high. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The bulletin you'll notice, the title in the bulletin may perhaps read something to the effect of guilty or guilty and cursed. Um, I'm considering a revised title for the message, simply a guilty crown, a guilty crown. And so before we begin looking into these scriptures, I just have a few preliminary thoughts of introduction. I want to encourage us by saying that, you know, we are entering today once again into holy ground. This is holy ground. In other words, these are not things for us to take lightly. These are not things for us to consider on a whim as if they were insignificant. Now granted, we might say that every time we pray, every time we enter into the presence of God through prayer, that that is holy ground. We might also say that every time we come together for worship, that we gather together seeking God together, that we're on holy ground. And I believe that's true. Every time that we meet with God, whether privately or corporately, that we are, as it were, in the shadow of the Almighty. There is something holy, something sacred, something significant. But I believe that here today there ought to be, in one sense, an even greater awareness about the holy ground that we're on in these Scriptures. And that's not to say that any other Scripture is less significant, but because I believe that today we're going to be looking into one of the most incomprehensible and unjust events 
in all of human history. That's what's unfolding before us is the height of human injustice and evil. Now, consider it this way, that even if all of these things that we're going to be looking at in the life of Jesus, if it were to happen to any person, any mere mortal human being, if these things happened to them, it would be evil. It would be something that was almost unbelievable. But when we come to consider that all of these things happen to the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who upholds the universe by the hand, by the word of his power, this is the one these things are happening to. It takes on a staggering amount of significance. It becomes even more incredible. And so let me begin by saying this. If you're not moved in your soul by what we see in our verses today, if you're not convinced and compelled by Jesus Christ in these Scriptures, there's something wrong with you. This is something that should grip your soul, your very soul. I got a text message from Brother Don Curran this morning at 5 o'clock. He said, Brother, I'm longing for an experiential Christ. I want to know the presence of Christ in a real way. And he said that was his prayer for himself preaching and for me as well. And I pray that the Lord hears him and me both. That we would be stirred and moved by what is set in front of us here. Think on this. We're going to look at the sinless Son of God living His entire life, His entire life as a substitute for His people. What do I mean by that? We often think Jesus as our substitute, well, that's, that's only in His death on the cross is the way we typically like to think about that, but that's actually not true. For example, whenever He was baptized by John the Baptist, He says, suffer it to be so in order that I might fulfill all righteousness. His role as a substitute did not only begin upon the cross, but His entire life. And that's part of what we're going to be seeing today. Consider it this way, every sympathy of Christ's experience in human frailty and every righteous thought that ever entered His heart or mind and every excruciating scourge that His body would bear, all leading to and culminating in His death on the cross and His resurrection, all of these things He did for the Father's glory and for the redemption of His people. But the trouble is, and I mean this with all of my heart, the trouble with most people, even those who are prepared to say something like, Jesus died for our sins, is that they've never looked upon His suffering and His death under the wrath of God the Father. They've never looked upon the sufferings of Christ as being something that they themselves actually deserve. Now, you may find this confusing or somewhat unbelievable, but think on it this way. This is the way that people are inclined to think about the death of Christ. They think of His suffering and death as some kind of a general accomplishment for mankind generally. And in this view, people essentially think of it this way, that we are merely victims of circumstance. Adam sinned, the world fell in sin, Jesus came to die to save us, to fix all the things that were wrong in the world, but they don't actually see their own responsibility, their own hand in the fallen state of the world as it is. We don't see our own guilt specifically applied to ourselves. We never come to say of ourselves, I am guilty, I'm under a curse, things are not well with me because of me. And in a text like ours today, we're confronted by those essential truths. And so here's the question. As we look into our text, the question is not our men sinners, our women sinners. It's not the question. That's obviously true and it cannot be denied. The question is, what about you? Are you, do you see yourself before God as guilty, as being under a curse of God's judgment? And it is only by the spirit wrought humility that anyone will be able to say, I am guilty without qualification, without excuse, without blaming somebody else for why I am the way that I am. Only from that low position will we be able to see God's grace and to look upon this lamb slain and see the glory of God contained in it. And so with those preliminary thoughts, begin looking with me at John chapter 19 and verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The first thing we must consider is the historical context of this statement. Why it was that Pilate flogged Jesus. Now remember this, Pilate has already declared, if you look back in verse 38 of chapter 18, Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
So hold on to that. Pilate's already come to the conclusion that Jesus is innocent. He has no guilt in him. He's already come to that conclusion. And then you look forward in verses 39 and 40, and we see that, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So first, Pilate says Jesus is innocent. Jesus is not guilty. Next, Pilate says, well, there's a way for us to release this innocent man. And so think about this. What sense does it make that Pilate would say Jesus is innocent and try to release him only then to turn around and flog him? What's the source of this? Why is it that Pilate determines here to flog Jesus even after he's found him to be innocent? And here's the answer. It's very simple. Self-preservation. Pilate's conscience was captive to the mob and the mob's passions and their desires. And you might even argue that Pilate had Jesus flogged in an attempt to release him. Pilate's saying, these Jews, they don't want to release Jesus. Okay, I'll flog him and then put him flogged in front of them and then maybe that will pacify their anger. They'll see him flogged and they'll let him go. So you might even be prepared to defend Pilate's cowardice here a little bit. And yet... It does not remove Pilate's guilt. People are so, like Pilate, vain in their imaginations. People tend to think, you and I, let's, let's make this personal. We, we don't want to speak only in generalities. You and I are prone to imagine that if I do something that's less evil than something else, then it kind of somehow justifies the evil that I've done. The lesser of two evils is the argument. Here's my point. Even if it's true that Pilate thought, well, I'm going to flog and humiliate an innocent man. Hopefully they'll see this and then they'll release him because he's not really guilty. If they see this, it'll pacify them. Does that justify the evil thing that he did to Jesus? Well, let me suggest to you that if anything, Pilate flogging Jesus is an even greater testimony of the fact that he knew that Jesus was innocent. You see, he's a perfect example of the hypocritical fence riding and speaking out of both sides of the mouth that's so common today. On the one hand, Jesus is innocent. On the other hand, I'm going to have him scourged, humiliated, beaten and tortured. Now, how perfectly portrayed is that in the way people treat Jesus Christ today? You may think, well, how is that so? How is it that people are doing what we see Pilate doing here? Well, let me suggest it to you this way. Do you know any people that are prepared to say to you that Christianity is a fine religion, that it's a good thing and it's got appealing moral messages such as love thy neighbor or judge not. So as long as we're loving each other and not judging each other, Christianity's fine. Here's the innocence of Christianity. Here's the, here's the Christianity that people are willing to accept and they can't really find a fault in it. Matter of fact, we know the Scripture says that the fruits of the Spirit goes on to tell us in Galatians against such things there's no law. If you're living by the fruits of the Spirit, there's no man on earth who can look at what you're doing and condemn you or say that what you're doing is evil according to the Scriptures. And yet, people look at Christianity and they'll look at these elements and they know there's nothing they can find guilty about it, but then they turn right around and they'll completely reject such subjects as the wrath of God and God's sovereign rule over all things. What I'm telling you is essentially man today has the same problem that Pilate had. They might like to say that they find no fault in Jesus, and they might even tolerate Jesus saying he, he's a king, but they're never going, they're never going to not make sure that they assert their own authority, their own will, and their own sovereignty as being greater than Jesus, especially when it appeases the people around them. Now, now consider this. Be sure, look in the text, see if this is not so. Here's Pilate. He's just been talking with Jesus about whether Jesus is a king or not. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, yes, I'm a king. I have authority. And we're going on, actually, Jesus, I love it. In the next message, Jesus is going to tell Pilate, you don't have any authority except that which is given to you by God. Pilate says, don't you know your life's in my hands? Jesus says, you don't have any authority over me except what God has given you. So there's this discussion about the kingship of Christ and what it means that Jesus is king. Pilate flogging him, humiliating him, presenting him as weak, as impotent, as unable to protect or stop these things from happening is essentially asserting his own authority over Jesus here and presenting him before the people as one who's under Pilate's rule and under Pilate's control. 
My argument is that people do the exact same thing today. They might say it's okay that Jesus is king over here whenever it comes to his power to save me, his, his power to give me eternal life, his power to bless me and do all of these things. But when it comes to what I want to do, what I really love, my own kingdom, my own sovereignty, my own will. Well, Jesus isn't necessarily king over these things. I'm going to exercise my right to be in power over these things. That's exactly what's portrayed in Pilate here. And I say it's amplified because this appeases or is an attempt to appease the people. So here's my question to you. Here today, are you submitted to Jesus Christ as king? Is Jesus king or is he not? And let me say this, if any part of your life, if any part of your thinking or any any aspect of your person is separated from submission to and commitment to Jesus Christ, you might as well be flogging him yourself. You might as well be saying, well, I'm going to exercise my authority, my power. That's what this flogging represents. Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If there's any realm of your existence that you're going to say, no, this is mine. Jesus, you can't have this. Jesus says you cannot be his disciple. It's a complete and total surrender. And we move on to the next earth shattering application about this flogging is this. That Jesus was indeed guiltless. We've already seen a few times and we're going on to see it multiple times, even in our text today, this repeated theme. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. I find no fault in him. He was without guilt again and again and again. We see Jesus without guilt. He truly and genuinely did not deserve this on any level. What about you? How does this affect you? Whenever people, evil people even, do evil things to you, is there something in your mind that thinks, well, I'm innocent. I really don't deserve this to be happening to me. I'm guiltless. I haven't brought this on myself. This person's evil for doing this to me. Well, you know, we're all very quick to declare our own innocence whenever others mistreat us. And I will grant, and the Scriptures grant, that there is some truth to this, at least on a horizontal human level. For example, the people who murder children in the womb, that's evil and it's unjustified and those children don't deserve that to happen to them from another human being. But when we talk about God's justice and what's right before God and whether or not God, if God is indeed sovereign over all things, as the scripture says that he is, then how can I ever look at God whenever something hard, something difficult, something unjust humanly happens to me? How can I look at God and say, this is not right? Who can say to the Lord, what have you done or bring his determinations, his providences into question? One biblical example of this from Genesis 50, verse 20, you should know it well, is Joseph's response to his brothers. Whenever it's revealed that their fathers died and they're scared for their lives. okay, dad's not here to protect us anymore. Brother's going to come after us for selling him into slavery and what we've done to him. Joseph says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's my point. Jesus was flogged as one who was guiltless, who was truly innocent. And how often do we look at ourselves in light of our suffering and say, I don't really deserve this. Why is it that Joseph is not seen to us as saying, you know what? You guys did wrong to me. You hurt me. And I'm owed an accounting. I'm owed some justice for this. I'm going to lash out at the one who's hurt me as though I didn't deserve it. No, Joseph says this. You were indeed evil, but God meant it. God meant the same it. God meant the suffering, the enslavement, the misery Joseph endured. God determined that that should happen. It was God's ordained purpose. And Joseph says God had an intention, a good intention in this. He's not claiming some mistreatment as though he didn't deserve it. As a matter of fact, on some levels, Joseph probably did deserve it. He does come across as quite an arrogant little punk before his brothers, bragging about his dream interpretation and his coat of many colors and all the rest of it. So maybe he did deserve it on some level, but that's not the point. The point is this. Jesus Christ alone is the only person in all of human history who can claim that he doesn't deserve his suffering. 
Not before God. He's the only one who can say before God with honesty, with truth, I don't deserve this. It's happening to me. What of you? Look forward to verse 2 of John chapter 19. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Now this verse leads us immediately into our next thought. And it flows right out of that last one about Jesus' innocence, his guiltlessness before men and before God. This leads us right into this concerning the guilt of mankind. Now, as we're going on to see, these soldiers, when they put a crown on Jesus, they're mocking him. His statement about being a king, they're making fun of it. And yet, in the providence of God, this crown upon Christ's head is a loud declaration to us of man's guilt, which Jesus came to bear. Here the king is with a crown on his head, and it's a crown of thorns. What does this have to do with you and I and the guilt of mankind? Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This is after Adam and Eve have fallen. They've been beguiled and deceived by the devil, the serpent. God has already pronounced judgment against the serpent. And in that a promise of a one who would squash the serpent's head, though his heel would be bitten. And then he pronounces judgment against the woman, a curse against the woman. And now it's Adam's turn, the most responsible figure in all of this. This is what he said to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. What does this tell us? Something people often overlook is that it was God's purpose in the creation, in the beginning, that man should work. So if there are any of you that are thinking, you know, I wish that we could just be in heaven and the new heavens and new earth so I'd never have to work again. Well, guess what? Work is a part of God's good design. The difference is in the beginning, there weren't thorns and thistles. There wasn't suffering associated with work. There wasn't sweat and blood associated with reaping a harvest. Work was good. It was a joy. It was joyful unto God. And we ought to desire the same thing. But that's just as an aside. Here's my point. When we read there's a crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head, that is no coincidence. None at all. You see, Adam in the beginning, Adam was in very one, one very real sense, Adam was the king of all creation. He was the representative head of the entire human race. And we were all represented by him, not only represented, united to him in his sin in so much as that it might as well have been us there doing it. This is the doctrine of original sin. That when Adam sinned, it's as though we were there with him as he represented us and we prove it every day as we carry out and practice our own sin. But here's the point. In this failure of Adam, there was a curse placed upon the world, placed upon the ground, and this curse is indicated by thorns and thistles. Here's the point. Adam's sin and guilt brought thorns and a curse. And in our text, the sinless Savior, the last Adam, here he is with no guilt, and he has thorns and a curse placed on him. This is significant. This is earth shattering if you come to realize and think about the power of God's providence in this. Here you have, you can imagine these soldiers, they heard Jesus talking about his kingdom. And now here they are, they're like, oh yeah, let's put this thorns, these thorns in his head, make a fake crown for him. Let's put a purple robe on him. They're making fun of him. But in God's providence, this is detailing and describing us God's purpose in salvation. The hope that we have in God through Christ is even being set before us by the wicked mocking of these soldiers doing this to Jesus here. Verse 3, we see the mocking continue. They came up to Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck Him with their hands. Now, as I mentioned, these soldiers, they seem to be imitating the hypocrisy of their leader, Pilate. Pilate saying these things, he's guiltless, here he is, behold the man, he's going on in this way. And they're mockingly praising him, but notice this. These soldiers, they're praising him with their lips, and then they strike him with their hands. What application do you suppose is in that? What do your hands reveal about the state of your heart towards Jesus Christ? What is it that you're actually doing, and how does that reveal your heart towards Jesus? 
That's what I'm asking you. Whatever your mouth may say about Jesus, if your hands are working against him, it sort of nullifies your profession. Let me ask it this way. What would you all think if I stood before you here today and said that these soldiers were actually worshiping Jesus as king? What would you think? Would you think I've gone insane? Would you say, well, brother, you really need to reconsider that text. Go and read it in its context. Don't you see they're striking Jesus with their hands? They hate him. They're mocking him. And yet you can look at their mouths and they're saying, hail, king of the Jews. What right do I have to judge them and say they're not really worshiping him? Well, how often is this true in the world today? You're accused of being judgmental if you assume that someone's profession is false because of how they're living and what their hands are doing. You know, salvation is by faith alone. It's faith alone apart from works. We don't work to save ourselves. But if you honor Jesus with your lips and your heart and your hands are far from him, your profession is useless. If you're not living in accord with the profession that you make as a style and pattern of your life, you're really no different than these soldiers here striking Jesus, though they call him king of the Jews. And we move on to verses four and five. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold, the man. Now we start to see what Pilate's intention, what his motivation and purpose in all of this is. You see what Pilate's doing. Essentially, it's this. He's demonstrating to the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth was not a threat to anyone. Do you see this in the text? They brought Jesus here. They're accusing him of this. They're making him out to be some political agitator who's jeopardizing Rome. And it's as though Pilate says, look, he's under my authority. I've just flogged him. He's got this crown. What sort of a pitiful king is this supposed to be? He doesn't stand any chance against our empire, against our army. He can't stop what we're going to do. He's presenting to the Jews, Jesus, and saying, look, I've got this contained. I've put a lid on it. He's submitted to me. He's not railing against me. I'm in control of him. You see, it was Pilate's job as a Roman governor to eliminate any threat against peace and to eliminate threats against Rome. So in flogging, humiliating, and demeaning Jesus, Pilate is declaring that he is no threat at all. Now think again how all of these things, it's interesting how these things are so applicable to our world today. How sad and how pathetic is it that people seek to portray the Lord of glory in this way today as if he was no real threat to their passions and their way of life. Let me ask you this. When you hear about Jesus... Do you suppose that he's nothing more than a weak, accommodating, accepting savior? Is he one that you can add as a cherry on top of your well-ordered life? Is Jesus just going to make your selfish pursuits more attainable? Is there something threatening about Jesus? Is there something challenging to you about Jesus? When you read of the Jesus of this book, is it one to be submitted to or one to kind of coddle and present as really effeminate and not able to do anything at all in a person's life? This is how he's being presented. And I'll tell you this. False prophets today, they know that other people are terrified of coming to a Jesus who demands everything from them. So they present Jesus as one who's not a threat. They say things like this. Come as you are. You can keep your sin and you can do whatever you want so long as you fill our pews and our offering plates. We really don't care. We're not interested. We're not going to present a Jesus that's going to challenge or threaten you in any way. That's exactly what Pilate's trying to do here. He's trying to appease these Jews by saying this Jesus is no threat at all. And many people today are prepared to view Christianity as a killjoy. How often have you thought of this? Have you heard this? Those Christians, those prudes, they don't do anything fun. They just have to sit around not having any fun all the time. It's a killjoy if you're going to follow Jesus. Jesus is a threat to my carnal pleasures that give me satisfaction and joy. He's a threat I ask again, do you imagine that Jesus is safe? Do you suppose that you can come into the presence of blazing glory and not have your sinful desires exposed and consumed? Do you remember the line from the Chronicles of Narnia whenever it's asked of Aslan, the representative of Jesus in that story? Is he safe? Is he safe? The answer, well, no, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. 
He's good. He's not safe. He's a deadly force to be reckoned with against evil. And he will bring evil into subjection. And he is doing it in the hearts of his people now. But make no mistake. Jesus is a threat against evil. Consider these two scriptures from Hebrews chapter four and verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And in Revelation 2.18, Jesus speaking to the church says unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, write the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So here's my question. Is Jesus the one of this book? Is the one who all things are naked and exposed to? The one you must give an account to? The one who has eyes like a flame of fire? Is that Jesus safe? Is He a threat to you, to your sin? To the things that you do in your life that God hates? Pilate says, behold the man. Well, I'm inclined to repeat that. Behold Him. But behold Him as He really is. Pilate's conception of who Jesus really is is absolutely wrong. That's why he doesn't view Him as a threat. But spoiler alert, that's about to change a little bit. Pilate's coming to an awareness of something about Jesus that you must come to an awareness of if you're going to be saved. Verse 6. says, When the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, Crucify Him, crucify Him. And Pilate said to them, Take Him yourselves and crucify Him, for I find no guilt in Him. And this verse the Jews are revealing to us that they were at least right about Jesus in one respect. They at least knew that this Jesus was a threat to themselves. They knew that Jesus was a threat against their pomp, their self-esteem, their self-righteousness, and ultimately their sin. Jesus was threatening their system that they had developed in order to profit off the backs of others, to present themselves as righteous. Jesus said, you're not righteous. He was a threat to them. And if you're here today and you think you're okay with God by your own works, this Jesus is a threat to you. And if you don't believe me, just compare your own life to the testimony of His. And you'll see how miserably unable you are to measure up to Him. But these Jews knew that. They at least were right about the fact that Jesus was indeed a threat to themselves. Pilate presents Jesus to them and says He's not a threat. The Jews cry out, crucify Him. He actually, He really is a threat to us. Now, what is it that you and I are prepared to say about Jesus? When you read of Jesus Christ calling you to repent of your sin, to acknowledge your guilt and unworthiness, what do you say? Because there are really only two options. You're either going to repent and trust in Christ alone to save you, or you're going to cry out, crucify Him. That's the only two options that there are. There's not a third. If you see Jesus as He really is, it's either kill Him or submit and love Him. Once again, Pilate reminds us that Jesus had no guilt. For I find no guilt in Him. You take Him and crucify Him. I find no guilt in Him. All of this evil and sin happening to the One. This Jesus who's clothed in perfect righteousness. He's clothed in perfect love and humility. And they're seeking to have Him killed. Mocking Him. Scourging Him. How did the Jews respond to Pilate? It's like, Pilate, you don't get it. He's a threat to us and to you. He's a danger to society. This Jesus is dangerous. He's a threat to you. Pilate doesn't get it. You can almost see the angst in these Jews. How do we convince this Roman governor to kill this man? We've got to convince him somehow. What do they say? They say we have a law in verse 7. And according to that law, he ought to die. Because He has made Himself the Son of God. Anyone who ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God or that He was not God in the flesh, that is a completely unattainable position from the Scriptures. You cannot defend it for even a moment. Because Jesus again and again refers to Himself as one with the Father. And here, these Jews... That's exactly why they wanted to kill him, because he did present himself as being God, co-equal with the Father. That's his representation of himself. And essentially, 
what they're revealing in their statement here. When they say we have a law according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. This is what they're saying. They're saying the God that we worship is not him. He's come to us revealing a God that we don't know anything about. Jesus has already told them in John's gospel, if they loved the father, they would love the son. But they don't love the son because they don't really love the father. They had a different God in mind. Worshiping somebody other than the living God, the true God. So here's the picture. The Jews are essentially saying, if this Jesus is the son of God, that's not the God we serve. He must die. And we're going to prove he's not the God we serve because we're going to kill him. He's going to stay dead, or so they thought. That's the attitude of these people. The other thing we notice here in verse 7 is how desperately they they wanted Pilate to see Jesus as a threat. Once again, consider how this applies today. Who do you think are the strongest, most vocal and aggressive opponents of Christianity today? And how is it that they oppose the Christian gospel or true Christianity? How does that take place today? Well, I'm going to argue it's in exactly the same way these Jews are here. You've got to convince people that this Christianity is a threat. It's dangerous. It's going to incite violence against people. It's going to be filled with hatred and bigotry. And it's going to lead to violence against homosexuals or transgenders or women. I mean, how often do you hear the argument goes like this? If you're for pro-life, if you're against abortion, it must be because you really hate women. You're not in favor of women's reproductive rights. You see, they make Christianity, biblical Christianity, out to be a threat, an opposition, an opponent to life and to goodness. Essentially, they call evil good and good evil. That's the testimony of those who are opposed to Christianity. Well, the truth is, biblical Christianity is a threat to all types and kinds of sin. If you as a man are a womanizer who sexually abuses and mistreats women, Christianity is a threat to your entire way of life. It says to you, repent of your evil and look to Jesus. And it doesn't matter what the flavor of your sin happens to be. You can't trust in Jesus and keep hold of that thing. You've got to give it up. Jesus said you've got to renounce all that you are if you're going to be one of his disciples. You've got to cut off and pluck out sin. Deal with it violently. So yes, Christianity is a threat to the wicked, to those who by nature and in their heart are opposed to God. But it's not physical violence. It's the cutting and piercing work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who are converted by the gospel and the word of God. And though it is true that there is sin that remains in every Christian to some degree, The center of your passions have been redirected. They've been changed from serving self and doing what pleases me and what makes me happy to serving Jesus Christ. There's a slaying that takes place. A killing of the old man. Yes, the nature is still there tempting me, but that man's been killed. He was crucified when Jesus was. He's been put to death. He's fighting for his life, trying to hold on. But you've been changed. And then finally, we get to verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I'm inclined to say, rightly so, Pilate. Rightly so. This Jesus who is the Son of God, you ought to be afraid of Him. You see, this last verse introduces a probing question to you. Does this Christianity that's set before you here and now, does it scare you? Does it make you a little bit afraid of Jesus? Does the reality that the penetrating eyes of the Son of God are a flaming fire, does that frighten you at all to think about this? I said before, and I'll say it again, I have zero intention of trying to scare people into heaven. That's an impossible venture. It'll never work. But the reality is that repentance is accompanied by an awareness of your sin and guilt before a holy God that leads to a godly kind of fear. What am I saying? Why was Pilate even more afraid by this statement? Well, there are two possibilities. Perhaps Pilate has begun to realize that this Jesus really is a threat to Rome as a political agitator. If he really is perhaps able to sway an entire nation of Jews as their leader, then perhaps he really is a threat after all that needs to be dealt with. Or perhaps 
it was because he began to consider the possibility that Jesus really was the Son of God. Now think of this. You've just publicly flogged and humiliated the Son of God. One who says he's the Son of God. That, that might produce a little bit of fear in you. If you think, and that's exactly the context of what happened on Pentecost in Acts 2. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ of all. It scared him to death. It cut him to the heart. What shall we do in light of that? But I hesitate and I doubt that that was Pilate's reaction. I don't believe that was the source of his fear. It's a wicked and carnal kind of fear. But let me ask you this. Does the knowledge of your past sins and even present at this moment sin against the living God, against this King Jesus, does it produce trembling in your soul? Knowing that you're going to stand before him, does that cause you to quake a little bit to think, what am I going to do on that day? How am I going to give an account before the living God? Well, it is true that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom in the Scriptures. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. As a matter of fact, if you read Romans chapter 3, one of the criticisms or the description of people who are completely dead in sin is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Fear of the Lord is a very good, healthy, natural, and right thing. I'm not calling for some fear, cowering terror of God that assumes things about God that are not true. You see, it is good to have a godly fear, not this carnal fear that Pilate has, which leads to death. If you only ever see Christ as a fearsome judge waiting to condemn you, you're never going to know his salvation. If you only ever see Jesus as ready to destroy you for your sin, you're never going to be saved. There is a fear that's described in the Scriptures as fear related to forgiveness. Psalm 130 and verse 4 says this, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Have you ever thought about that? The fear of the Lord is connected vitally to the fact that He's a God who forgives. And this is the fear. Why would I fear a God who's forgiving? Because the godly fear in the Scriptures is one that, is, that you see yourself, you esteem yourself as you really are before God and you see God as He really is. There's an appropriate reverence and submission and a realization that yes, He's a lion. He's not safe, but He's good. A realization of His justice, His righteousness and His holiness. Consider for just a moment from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The difference. What am I calling for? What is appropriate in light of this Jesus set before you here? What sort of fear ought you to have? In light of your guilt? In light of the curse that you're under? What is it? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Listen to verses 8 through 11. Paul writes and says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Here's the picture. Whenever your soul is grieved by a knowledge of God and your own guilt before God, there's this loathing, this realization, what I've done is really evil before God. I am guilty. I am under a curse. It's my fault. And this godly fear leads to repentance and salvation, which is rooted in your knowledge of your guilt, as well as the joyful expectation of God's love and forgiveness in the person of his son. And the logical thinking person says, how can that be? How is it that a knowledge of the terror, the, the justice, the wrath of God against sin, against me, my own guilt, how is that ever going to lead a person to see the love and the goodness of God? Well, the closing thought I want to leave with you today has to do with the relationship between God's forgiveness and the crown of guilt that we deserve. You remember I told you in the beginning, based on that text from Genesis, 
That how this crown of thorns, the thorns, that's an indication of being under a curse. He was crowned with a curse. Your kingship, your authority, your leadership of your people has to do with a curse on your head. How prophetic is that? Wicked, godless soldiers proclaiming the glorious depths of the gospel to us. Saying to us, look here, one with a curse on his head who's also a king. What does that have to do with you and I? Why is it? That the Son of God had to bear a crown of thorns. That's a gruesome picture. And maybe you don't think about it, but it's not like they just got the, the thorns to kind of stick in his hair like Velcro. They would have driven those thorns through the skin and his scalp so that it would stay on through all his torture and abuse and mistreatment. This is the suffering. This is the crown of thorns. What does that have to do with us? It's not just a physical suffering, though that's severe indeed. Consider from our call to worship in Genesis chapter 22. Just listen from verses 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. By his horns, his head, the top of his head. Here's a ram with thorns wrapped around his head. This is the thing that's going to die instead of the son Isaac. This is the thing bearing the curse of God. These are the thorns brought about by the curse of God in the beginning. Holding on to this ram. John the Baptist comes to you and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Ram of God with the horns caught in the thorns. This is the picture of what Jesus came to accomplish. And he offered it up. This ram offered up instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The last text I want to read for you is Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is put as clearly as it possibly can be. And if you don't see that this is true about you, I... Don't know what hope you could possibly have for ever entering the kingdom of God and knowing the salvation of God. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. This is what he was doing with that crown of thorns, that curse upon his head. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Stop for a moment. Ask this question of yourself. Have you done? Have you abided by all things written in the law? Is there even one point in the law of God is revealed to you both on your conscience and in his word that you have ever failed? And the answer is absolutely yes. In all points you have failed. In everything you have sinned. The Scripture says that means you're under a curse. You've been cursed by God. The judgment of God's curse is upon you. The Scripture says the wrath of God is abiding on those who are children of disobedience, not trusting Christ. There's a curse. And he says now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Everything you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed is a testimony against you before God. And there's nothing you can do. There's no escape from this curse. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We're seeing the preview as these thorns are driven into his head. There's the preview. There's the curse. And that curse isn't over yet. He's going from the thorns on his head, the mocking of the soldiers. He's going from there to a cross to die. He's hanging on a tree cursed under the wrath of his father. Why? Because we're under a curse. 
God said, go redeem them, son. Jesus says, I will. And he did. This is what these thorns are all about. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The last thing I have to say to you is two things. Behold the man. Behold the Christ. This Savior who's bearing the curse of your guilt as He dies upon the cross that you might be forgiven. His matchless glory. Pilate says, what a king. A king indeed. A king reigning. A king sovereign. A king who's able to save His people. And in a moment, we're going to proclaim His kingship, His lordship through His death on the cross as we take the Lord's Supper together. My charge to you is this. If you're a Christian, rejoice. Be free. No longer be bound up with the opinions of people against you thinking you're better than you really are. We really don't get humility. I don't. The slightest thing that someone points out, imperfection in me. I'm defending myself. I'm angry. They're wrong. If I see myself rightly as one who doesn't deserve better than I've ever gotten. All I've ever known is mercy. All you've ever known is the grace and goodness of God. I don't care how messed up your life's been. If you're not in hell, you have known the mercy of God. While it is still today, repent and trust in this Jesus who died to redeem His people from the curse, who suffered that we might live. So with that, I'll ask you to close. bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, well, Lord, I thank You for the glory of Your Word that You have accomplished everything necessary to save our souls. I thank You for Your dear Son. I praise You for what He has done for us in our place as our substitute. Oh God, would You prepare our hearts now as we prepare to gather around Your table. I pray that our hearts would be emptied of pride, any arrogance or self-righteousness, completely trusting Your Son and the merits He's provided. Oh, Father, I thank You for this day and for this time. In Jesus' name, Amen.